You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Man, I'm so glad you're here today. If you're visiting with family or friends and one of the people who was up here dedicating a child this morning, we just wanna say welcome. We're so glad you're here. And uh, we're kind of jumping into the deep waters, but I'm gonna try to make it really, really practical. So wherever you are in your journey with Christ, it's your first time ever in a church or you've been doing this for decades, hopefully you'll be able to follow along pretty easy. Let's start here, you ready? Have you ever given the perfect gift? Anybody? I'm curious. Raise your hand if you've ever given the perfect gift. Okay, the person is probably sitting next to you, but they confirm. Because I'll tell you, twice in my life, I thought I gave the perfect gift, and both times, it did not go as I planned. A couple years ago, at Christmas time, actually Christmas was over, and I was at Walmart, because everybody knows the best time to buy anything on sale is after Christmas, not before. And so I go, and I'm looking for next year's Christmas stuff. And I go to Walmart, and they have three electric bikes on massive, massive clearance, And so I buy all three of them because I have three boys. And I'm thinking to myself, this is like a mini motorcycle. What could be better than this? I buy all three. I don't really get a chance to talk about it much with my wife. I think I called her and she wasn't available. So I just went ahead and bought them. I thought, what's the worst case scenario? You take anything back to Walmart, right? And uh, you can take Target stuff back to Walmart, I think, anyway. So worst case scenario. (laughs) I don't know if they do that anymore. Just saying. Okay, moving on. Anyway, so... I take these bikes home and we hide them. I don't want to say where in case my kids hear this. And we hide them. And for 12 months, I am so excited. I'm stoked about these. I have the best present ever for my kids. So it comes close to Christmas time and we bring these, I mean, they're big boxes. I mean, I can't even hardly put my arms around them, which I know isn't saying much, but they're big boxes and we wrap them up and we've got them under the tree. So when the kids go to bed one night, they wake up the next morning and there they are. And my kids for two weeks are talking about what's in them. And I'm loving it because I think I've got them the best present ever, but you probably already see where this is going. So for two weeks, they're guessing what's in it. And you know what they guess? Maybe it's a box full of candy. And then one of my kids says, maybe it's a box full of Xbox games. And another one, who at the time was very much into Rubik's Cubes, was like, maybe they filled it up with Rubik's Cubes. And it dawned on me that what is inside the box is going to be a massive letdown for everything that they envisioned would be in a big box. They never thought in a big box would be an electric bike. So Christmas comes, and they open it up, and no joke, the quote out of their mouth was, what is it, Dad? (laughs) Now I want you to imagine this. You buy your kids a Christmas present, and what is it outside? It's freezing and it's cold. Is this the right time to use an electric bike? No. So now they have a Christmas present that isn't really what they wanted, and they have to wait three months to use it. This was a massive letdown, and I am so glad that somebody else in the family decided to buy them like a year's thing to uh, Kentucky Kingdom so that they could like celebrate that was the best Christmas present that year. But I was so disappointed. Here's the reality. Their mom was not overly excited about them riding a small motorcycle at their age. So now their nephews have ridden them more than they have, and they're still sitting there charging just in case it ever gets warm in Indiana. Now, there was another time I didn't quite hit the nail on the head. In fact, about five years or so ago, I don't remember, I did a sermon series about this Christmas present that I made my wife. I don't know if any of you were here or remember this. 
I decided I was going to build something for my wife. And in typical ADHD fashion, I got really excited, got focused in, got hyper-focused on it. I worked hard, worked till like one or two in the morning for like three and a half weeks leading up to Christmas. And the problem is, came Christmas, it wasn't completely done. Not completely done. It was really, really close. So I showed it to her and said, I'm going to finish it. And here we are five years later, and it's still in pieces in my garage. Next time I do a marriage series, we might bring in somebody else to speak because I'm not sure I have any wisdom to share. And my poor wife went through the whole Christmas and went, so you basically got me nothing. I feel so loved. My poor wife, as I have said many, many times. So here's the thing. Have you ever gotten the perfect gift? Now, I'm not telling you the times that I actually did well. There were a few times I actually hit the ball out of the park. But here's the irony. Every gift I've ever gotten, no matter how good or how bad it was, sooner or later, the, the luster of it all wore off, didn't it? But Jesus never gives bad gifts. In fact, there's a verse in the Bible in the book of James that says, every good and perfect gift comes down from your Father of heavenly lights. In other words, God knows how to give good and perfect gifts. And what we do at night in my home, if you, you may try doing this if you haven't yet, is we pray every single night. And one of the biggest things we pray every night is, yes, we pray for people who are sick or have surgeries, things going on in the church or in our family or whatever it is. But we also, every night, thank God for things we did that day or that are coming up or that have been a blessing because we always want to remember that God is good. And many, many times when I'm doing that, I will actually pray and say, God, above all the things you've ever given us, if we if you take away the house, if you take away the cars, if you take away our toys, if you take away our clothes, God, we thank you that you won't take away you. We thank you, God. You've given us the greatest gift in your son and then the gift that your son gave us. Do you know what the gift that the son gave us is? Let's take a look. Ready? Luke chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus says this. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Now, some of you probably shouldn't answer here. The implication of Jesus is everybody knows a good dad knows how to give a kid what he needs. He goes on. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Now, some of you might give him a scorpion in an egg just for fun, but not if you're a good dad. And then he goes on in verse 13 and he says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, so we just went into the deep end real fast. What is the Holy Spirit? We're gonna spend the next four weeks in addition to this one looking at this leading up to Easter. And I just gotta tell you, we're still going to leave so much on the table that we aren't gonna have time to talk about. We're gonna focus our time on the Holy Spirit himself more than we are on the miraculous parts of the Holy Spirit. Everybody's fascinated by these miraculous things, our tongues or, or, or miracles or healings or all these different things. Are they, are they real today? And those are great conversations. We'll dip into them slightly, but we're gonna focus on the majority of scripture about the Holy Spirit. And the first thing I want you to see is the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift that God ever gave you. And you'd say, well, okay, maybe apart from Jesus, but the answer is yes to both. You cannot separate the Holy Spirit from Jesus. You cannot separate Jesus from the Holy Spirit. This is why when we refer to God, we talk about God as a triune God. Trinity is the word we use, and if that doesn't boggle your mind, it's like Kentucky math, but it's from God. 
Three equals one, and one equals three. And I'm joking, if you're from Kentucky, it's just a joke. I've been adopted into the Kentucky family. I'm married into it, so I love Kentucky people. But moving on. Anyway, the Trinity is that God is three, but you cannot look at God and say, God is three. You look at God and say, God is one. As Joe just read on stage, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The whole idea is God is one, and it's a picture of unity. Such unity this world has not known since the garden. In fact, in the garden, when God first created, and, and I'm, again, I told you this last week, we've been going through the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series, and we're only in The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book chronologically, and it shows Aslan, who represents God, and I guess you could say represents Jesus, but that's also the beauty of the entire analogy, and Aslan speaks, and like trees just start growing out of the ground at a quick rate, and all of a sudden, things change their identity at the snap of a finger, and it's such a beautiful picture, because we see God in the garden. He creates the cosmos. He puts the planets and stars and everything in their place. Then he gets to earth and creates earth, and he puts trees and animals and fills the birds and the fish, and the whole thing fills the whole earth, and then he gets to making men and women. And when he makes men and women, it says he makes them in their own image, in his own image. And so he takes on his creation, which is wild and waste, and he makes a garden, and he puts Adam in the garden to work the garden. And it is such a beautiful picture because the garden represents a temple. Now, there are all these things I could do to show this to you, and I actually will over the next few weeks. I'll show you a little bit of it. I'll pull the veil back a little bit and show it to you. But the garden is a temple, and the very words used for Adam in the garden about what he's supposed to do in the garden are the exact same words that God later gives to a priest and what the priest is supposed to do inside the temple. Isn't that cool? They're supposed to serve in it, and they're supposed to guard it. And Adam was supposed to do that in the garden. And God tells him, be fruitful and multiply and take this garden and go out from here and spread the garden. Take the garden out to the ends of the earth. So as Adam and Eve multiplied and made children, just like we saw today, the image would grow and they would go out and the garden would go out and garden would go out and garden would go out. And it's a little bit wild out there. It's a little bit crazy out there. And you're subdue it and rule over it. Subdue it and rule over it. And then keep serving and protecting in the garden. But Adam failed in his job. He didn't do his job well. And Satan creeps into the garden and tempts Adam and Adam fails. This is why in Romans chapter four and five, Paul is connecting all these dots for us. And he's trying to help us understand that in the same way that the first Adam fell and every subsequent Adam since then, if you notice, if you ever read just the book of Genesis alone, and if, if you're new to the Bible, don't start there. Start in the book of Mark. Just a little Bible wisdom for you. But if you read the book of Genesis, you'll see God's call and encouragement repeated over and over and over again. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He says it again to Noah after he destroyed everything in a flood. He says it again to a guy named Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. He says it again to his children, Isaac. Says it again to his son, Jacob. He keeps repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and repeating it because generation after generation after generation, God is searching after someone who will faithfully, finally live for him. But each one keeps failing. And death keeps reigning on the earth because of it. Like if you're visiting with us today, you don't know anything about church. This one thing I'm about to say might resonate with you. Death has been reigning on the earth because we have been rebelling against God. 
and has created a problem for us. Because God desperately wants to pour life into us. He desperately wants us to flourish. He desperately wants us to be healthy and to grow and to see vitality. But our rebellion against God keeps bringing death back into the story. I mean, think about it for a minute. For those of you who are married out here, aren't almost all of your marital problems existing because of your selfishness? Okay, maybe it's their selfishness, but the problem in most marriages is that we think they are all the problem and that it's not us. And then reality, it might be 90-10, it might be 97-3, or it might be 50-50, but there's always some element where I have brought death into this relationship through my own selfishness. Is it the same true for your relationship with your parents or with your children? Anytime there's death being experienced in the relationship, isn't it coming because someone is acting selfishly? Isn't the same true in governments, in greed, in businesses, in friendships around the world today? And God is looking for one, just one, just one who will live for him. Now this is the beauty where the Holy Spirit comes into the picture. In the very beginning, when God took Adam and he formed him out of the dust of the earth, which is also why at funerals we have to say, from dust we came, from dust we will return. When Adam is formed out of the dust of the earth, the spirit comes and breathes life into Adam and brings Adam alive. This is why, as we briefly talked about a few weeks ago in Ezekiel, towards the end of Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 36, I think it is, Ezekiel is shown an illustration by God. He's shown a valley of dry bones. Death has occurred and everything is dead and the spirit comes and moves in the bones and brings the bones to life and they start coming back together and muscles are formed and tendons and then skin and life is breathed into them and this this whole idea of God takes what is dead and he revitalizes it. He brings it alive again. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing again in the new creation. My favorite book on the Trinity, if you want to read any book, I know you're like, why would I ever read a book on the Trinity? But it's really, really, really readable and it's really, really, really to understand. And he's British, so he's got British humor. But inside the fact that he's got British humor, he's actually really funny. I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle with British humor. Anyway, the book is called Delighting in the Trinity by a guy named Michael Reeves. And in this book, he says this. Ongoingly in his creation, the spirit vitalizes and refreshes. He delights to make his creation and his creatures fruitful. Isaiah writes of the time when the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field and the fertile field seems like a forest. The psalmist sings, when you send your spirit, they, the creatures, are created and you renew the face of the earth. Small wonder then that creativity, the ability to craft, adorn, and make beautiful is a gift of the spirit. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge, and all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to do work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. The spirit makes his creation alive with beauty. What God is doing in the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, if you know how to give good gifts, you'd ask me and I'd give you one. I'd give you the Holy Spirit. What the Spirit wants to do is fill every believer in the name of Jesus and revitalize them. To bring beauty into the world. Beauty looks like God's kingdom of love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Imagine if you had these things in ever-increasing nature, what would be different in your life? It would be amazing, right? Imagine the patience that every time when these little children become terrible twos or threes, pick whatever one you want, imagine if you had the patience of the Holy Spirit, the power of God inside you. Imagine your ability to be more like God the Father to your children. Imagine the patience of a spouse to their spouse, that when they come home and they've had a bad day and they're taking things out on you, they had nothing to do with you. Imagine the ability to be filled with self-control and patience in that moment because the Spirit of God was in you. Imagine even being able to love, say, a sibling when you grew up and you took a path towards God and they took a path away from God, but God's love has so filled you that you're able to build a bridge for them to walk across even though they're living in a way that's hurtful to you and damaging the relationship. But see, the Spirit longs to do this inside us. Now, let me show it to you through the mouth of Jesus. We're gonna go right to one of my favorite sections in the entire Bible. This is John chapter 14, and it goes all the way to John, really, 17. <coughs> Excuse me, where we are in the life of Jesus at this moment is the Last Supper's already happened. Judas has already gone out to betray Jesus, and now he's got the 11. And he takes them into the garden, and he's having a conversation right before he kneels down. He has this conversation. It's kind of a long-going conversation. And then he kneels down the garden, chapter 17, and then he gets arrested. But we're in the conversation now that precedes the arresting and precedes his final prayer. John chapter 14, look at verse 15. Jesus says this. If you love me, keep my commands. See, this is the root going all the way back to the garden. When Adam failed to listen to God and Adam failed to obey God and then Noah and then Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Saul and then David and then Ezekiel and then Isaiah and every subsequent generation of people, the best of the best and the worst of the worst, everybody in between failed to obey God and Jesus shows up and he says, this is what God has been looking for. If you love me, if you really love me, obey me. And then he says, verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. We'll get to all that in just a second. Let's start to unpack what Jesus is saying. Jesus uses the word here, the advocate, the word advocate literally is the Greek word, the paraclete. That's fun for later. The paraclete, you'll often heard referred to. This is the Holy Spirit. And he's sometimes called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of God, God's Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And literally, the paraclete means an advocate, an intercessor, a counselor, a consoler, a comforter, or a helper. It's because it has so many different kind of connotations and meanings but they're all wrapped up in the same thing. And actually, it is a legal word. It's a legal word to refer to as somebody who's in trouble legally and stands before a judge and they're appointed an advocate, an intercessor, a consoler, a comforter, a helper, someone to come alongside them in their trouble and help them work it out. And that's the word that Jesus picked to describe the Holy Spirit as a gift for you. About two years ago, I was reading through the Bible and I came across a passage in James. And James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, they got the same mommy and a different daddy. 
And James says, if you need wisdom, ask God for it, and he will give it to you graciously without finding fault. I've read that passage probably 20 or 30 times or more. I've preached on it, I've taught on it, I've used it in messages, but in that moment, God said to me, Matt, when you need something, I'm a good father, and I'm there to help you. I'm not looking to point fingers. Have you ever noticed when things go wrong how often we want to point fingers? When your kids mess up, how often do you call them in a room and say, what happened? Who started it? Don't we? God says, that's secondary to me to figuring out how we're going to fix the problem. If you need wisdom, I'm here to help. But God, I really, really messed this one up. Yeah, I watched, I know. But God, I really hurt this person that I love. Yeah, I know, it hurt me too. But God, I'm not sure that there's enough money in the world to dig out of this one. God, I'm not sure that they can ever forgive me or trust me again. Yes, but there is one that Jesus has sent to fill you, to give you all the wisdom that you need going forward. Because the Spirit is here to revitalize to bring hope. The Spirit is here to do in you what you could not do on your own. In fact, in the book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeve says, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and to Jesus. Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. The Spirit's job is to show up and apply to our lives Jesus. That's what he does. Come back to John chapter 14, verse 19. Before long, Jesus says, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Let's just hang on that for a second. I wish I had another hour. Ah, look at the clock and I'm freaking out because I got to speed up. All right. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. Jesus is about to go to the cross and the disciples don't understand, even though he has told them over and over and over again, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go. And now in this whole chapter, really chapter 13 to 14, kind of this whole thing, Jesus is preparing them. I'm leaving you. And where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But don't worry, I'll come back and I'll take you with me. And the disciples are like, Jesus, where are you going? And why would you go somewhere we can't go? That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is like, you guys, just, you're so thick-headed. You don't understand what I'm trying to say. And we'll actually dig into that more over the next few weeks. But Jesus is like, ah, you just don't get it. Before long, the world won't see me. I'm going away. But you will see me. Well, how is it they'll see him? Because when Jesus died on the cross, everybody thought story over, game over. But then how did he raise from the dead? the Holy Spirit. And you're like, that's not as cool as you just made that sound. Yes, it is. The Spirit is the one who breathed life into Adam and gave life where there was no life. What is death? It's the absence of what? Life. Death isn't a thing if there's life. Death is nothing if there's life. Death is the absence of life. That's why Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. You were dead. So you, me, we are spiritually dead. And God came and when he rose Jesus from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
Now he says, you too, though you are dead in your sins and transgressions, though you have rebelled against God, though you did not do all that God asked you to do, the Holy Spirit comes to breathe life into you, to raise you from the dead and to raise you up with him. Because I live, you also will live. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to get to. Then he goes on and he says, on that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father. I too will love them and show myself to them. Do you get this connection? What Jesus is saying is everyone has failed to obey God, but God longs to be obeyed. He longs to be trusted and followed even when it makes no sense. And I know for some of you that's hard. You've got something that's eaten your lunch. God longs for you to obey him. It's what he's always wanted. The problem is our best efforts keep failing. And until you come to embrace this, you will never need Jesus. Our best efforts keep failing, keep failing, keep failing. Because I almost always follow however I'm feeling in a moment. And if I'm feeling really good and spiritually high and strong, I'm very apt to follow God and obey him. But if I'm tired and I'm worn out or I'm stressed or I'm angry or I'm hurt or I'm offended or I'm justifying my own desires of the flesh, it's very hard to obey him. And God knew that. And rather than leave you dead in that place where you lived for yourself, he brought you alive by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you would have the power to obey him inside you already. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But as long as you think you don't need a savior, as long as you think you're good enough, as long as you think that God needs you on his team, then you will not surrender to him. You will not die to self. You will not trust him to fill you up. You will believe that you are enough. And you will watch slowly as you bring death into every relationship around you because you don't have enough inside you to get the job done. But if we love God, he will love us and he'll show himself to us. Look at verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Notice the we and the our. We will come and make our home with them. He's speaking of the father and he's speaking of the spirit. I wanna take you back to a verse we already looked at, just a little portion of it. Because I want to emphasize something for you, and then we're going to get very, very, very specific. Ready? But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. Jesus said that in John chapter 14, verse 17, what we call B. It's the second part of the verse. You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. This is the most radical thing I want you to get today, right? The most radical thing. Prior to Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead, the Holy Spirit often moved in people's lives. Sometimes the spirit would come into a person and speak through them and fill them up. We see this in the prophets. The spirit would move in a prophet like Isaiah, say in Isaiah 6, and take him before the presence of God. Or would move in a prophet and would speak God's words on behalf of the prophet. Or sometimes would fill a warrior maybe going into battle or something like that. Or as we read, and I think it was in Exodus, or as, um, they would, the spirit would fill a person. They'd have a craftsmanship or a skill or an artistry and they'd get a job done. But then the spirit at the end of the filling would leave, and the person would be back to where they were before. But Jesus says, 
The Spirit has been with you, disciples, but now the Spirit's not just going to be with you. He's going to be where? In you. He's going to fill you. Now, I don't, I got four more weeks to dig into the Holy Spirit more, okay? But I want to answer one question for our remaining time together today. Here's the question. How do we ask for the Holy Spirit? I mean, if everything that I have told you, and it's just scratching the surface, if everything I have told you is true, don't you want him? This is the greatest gift anyone could ever buy you, and trust me, you will not want your gift, you will not want your money back. You will not be looking to play with a box instead of the toy inside. You will not be looking for something else besides him. But how do we get it? Well, the answer Baptism is the most common way for a believer to make a plea for the Holy Spirit. Now, let me show it to you in scripture, and I realize many churches come from different places on this, but let me show you where we land and why we land there, and just hang on for a second, all right? Some of you are like, no, wait a minute, pastor. I was taught, just hang on for a second. Luke chapter three, verse 15 and 16. It says this. The people were waiting expectantly, were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly the Messiah This would be John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There is this consistent connection between baptism and the Holy Spirit. Now, some churches, I know, we don't have time to go into this right now, some churches separate that and say there's water baptism and there's spirit baptism. And what I would say is the most consistent thing we see in the scripture is in our water baptism is the moment when the Holy Spirit fills us. Are there exceptions to that? Absolutely. We'll get to that in a minute. But let's just look at a few examples of how God connects water baptism to spirit baptism, the fulfillment of both things. Luke chapter three, Jesus himself gets baptized. Look at verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. I don't know why God always speaks in a, in a low voice. What if, what if God sounded like Mike Tyson? You're my son whom I love. It's big, powerful. I like the deep voice better. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. By the way, is that not what every child wants to hear from their dad? Why was God pleased with Jesus? Because Jesus obeyed in every way. He was fit for the job. And notice who came down out of heaven and descended on him in his baptism? The Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up and it says he preached a really long sermon and we only get a few paragraphs, which means I'm allowed to go a little bit over today. So Acts chapter two, verse 37 says this. When the people heard Peter's sermon, that's the this, they were cut to the heart and they said, Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And verse 38, Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is for you and for your children and for all who are yet still far from him. And some of you are visiting today and watching online. Again, we see this consistent connection between the spirit and baptism. 
Now, what does the word baptism mean? This is a whole bigger conversation for another day. That's not the point of today's message, but let me give you a 30-second answer. The word baptism here in Greek is the word baptizo. It literally means to submerge. Hence, baptism to immerse, literally to dip under. I pulled that right off a website about Greek biblical words. I didn't make any of that up. So some of you go, well, that's just your interpretation of baptism, pastor. That's literally what the word means. In fact, I was told, and I don't speak current Greek. Biblical Greek is different than modern day Greek, but I was told the word baptism is still a real word today. And if you were to go to somebody's house and they were washing dishes by hand, I don't know anybody who does that anymore, but I'm just kidding. But if you were washing dishes by hand, you were to get it all soapy and suzzy over here and you were to take it and dunk it in the water. You were to look at that person who speaks Greek and say, wait, 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 what does that word that you just said, what did you just do? They'd say, I just baptized the dish. Literally in ancient Greek writings, it was used to describe a ship who was sunk in the sea that lost in a war. The ship didn't get splashed by the cannon or whatever it was that hit the water and splashed it. The ship was submerged into the water. That is why we here at Kingsway, we only practice baptism in one way. We are not saying that if you were sprinkled that it didn't mean anything. We're not saying it doesn't count. But we actually have it written into our bylaws that if anybody wants to be a member at Kingsway, we all get immersed. We all start at the same place. It's your choice, not your parents' choice, which is also why we don't immerse these little babies. This is why we bring them up here and we pray over them and we encourage them. We challenge them to say, go get them, parents. And when they're ready to receive Jesus, they'll go into the waters also. Now, let me answer a question. I know some of you are asking because you come from a different church. Are there exceptions to water baptism and spirit baptism where somebody receives the Holy Spirit and it didn't come in their baptism? And the answer is yes. And I'm gonna acknowledge that because I'm not being uber rigid here. I don't know, Uber may have a different meaning now with cars riding around, but I'm not gonna be super rigid here. I'm just gonna say there's a normal pattern. Let's look at a couple of these so you know what I'm talking about. In Acts chapter 10, there's a guy named Cornelius and his family, and Cornelius is a Gentile, and Peter was not ready for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. He thought this was a Jewish thing, and God was leading Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And it says in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, those are the Jewish converts to Christianity or with Peter, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. What? They get it too? This is totally new. Look at verse 47. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, what's the point of this passage? The point of this passage is God is showing Peter that he's taking the gift of the Holy Spirit beyond just the Jews. This is going to the Gentiles. So we have a Gentile family who receives the Holy Spirit so that Peter goes, oh, wow, I guess God is serious about this. And then they get baptized. But notice, and don't miss this, people's faith in Jesus Christ are followed by baptism. And what we've done over the last few thousand years of Christian history, and I get the way this happened. Many of us raised Christian children, and they loved the Lord, and so they already had a faith in Jesus, and so then now what do we do? But the consistent pattern in the book of Acts, when I come to faith in Jesus, I surrender to Jesus and unite with him in baptism. We see that over and over and over again. So when there are exceptions to the norm, There's still water baptism, sometimes right before and sometimes right after, but it's always right there. Let's take a look at one more, and I promise we are almost done. Acts chapter 19, verse 2, says this. Paul arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, 
did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. First thing I want to point out. So John or Paul gets to Ephesus. He finds some disciples there, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. There's something different about them, but they love God. They love Jesus. They have faith. And Paul looks at the basis, which baptism did you receive? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. We couldn't receive if we didn't know. <clears throat> I think it's fascinating that Paul asks them, which baptism did you receive? When they're questioning, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Look at verse four. Paul said, John's baptism, this is John the baptizer, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And we'll get to that in another time, not for today. But here's what I find fascinating is that they get baptized and then they receive the Holy Spirit from Paul laying his hands on them. So is this a rigid pattern that the only way to receive the Holy Spirit is to go into the waters of baptism? What I would say is the book of Acts shows us it is not a rigid pattern. It is the normal pattern. So I get this question all the time. So I'm gonna answer it from the stage. Let's say somebody comes to me and says, I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit, Pastor. How can I know? What I would say is, have you ever been united with Jesus Christ in baptism? If your answer is, well, I was sprinkled as a kid, or I was 10 years old and I, I don't really remember it, or I did it, but I only did it because my grandma wanted me to, that I would say, it's time for you to be united with Jesus Christ in baptism and to assume from this moment forward, you have the Holy Spirit. I do not encourage rebaptism. If you were baptized and it was your choice and you knew what you were doing, do not get baptized again because you went through a hard season. God is faithful when we are unfaithful. God is faithful when our lives fall apart. But if you've never been united with Jesus Christ, why not today? Or perhaps you need some more time to think about this, pray about this, ask some hard questions. I get it. On Easter this year, we're gonna have three services, 9, 10.30, and noon. And we're gonna have a baptism celebration. And I don't know if there's gonna be three people getting baptized that day or 300 people getting baptized that day. I only know that for the next few weeks, we're gonna invite people over and over and over and over again to think about it, to pray about it to be filled with the presence of God so that you can live the life that God longs for you to live. If today's your day, why wait? Why wait? Let me close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul says this. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. You ever notice how many times Jesus talks about streams of living water will flow from within you? And then Paul connects it here to drinking of the Holy Spirit. The whole idea is when we take a drink, God fills us and it just flows out of us a life to give life to all. This morning, we're gonna take communion. You'll find it on the tables around the room here. And as you take that bread and that juice, realize what you're drinking is life. You are celebrating the gift of God, Jesus Christ, who then sent the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, to you. Take this and thank him. 
Thank him that your sins are washed away. John says, oh, I just wish I had so much more time. John says, John says, I tell you all the things that I tell you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, we have an, an intercessor who goes on our behalf before God. His name is Jesus and pleads our case. And Jesus gave us an advocate, the Holy Spirit, to be the one to plead our case. As you take the bread and the juice today, wherever you are, wherever you come from, whatever baggage and burden you bring, bring it to communion and take it to God and say, God, thank you that in Jesus I have life. I have it to the full. On these same tables, you'll find a box for offerings. Bring your offering to the Lord or just present it to him. Look, if you're visiting with us today, you can take communion or you can just stay seated where you are. That's fine. But if God's moving in you today, you find somebody with a connection and just say, I'm ready to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life that you give us. In Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we said a lot of things. We did a lot of teaching today. God, I pray right now your spirit would move in this place and everything that's from you would be remembered and everything that's from me would be forgotten. God, I pray that you would fill this place with your glory. God, stir in us. If there's anybody right now who's never surrendered to you, never joined you, Father, I pray that they would be moved in their spirit to do that. And I pray this Easter, God, we have a huge celebration of people receiving life that really is life. In Jesus' name.